Hello, I'm Jack. Hi, I'm Denise. Hello, this is Tom. Hi, I'm Josh. Hi, and I'm James. And welcome back to the third episode of the Showroom Spotlight podcast. Today, we're discussing the pandemic award season, LGBTQ plus month in relation to the showroom, reviews of polystyrene, I am a cliche, and killing Escobar. And we'll also be looking ahead to films on the horizon. Today we're going straight over to Denise for the first segment. Shall we rounding up her thoughts about the recent British Film Awards? And just how different the award season has been this year due to COVID. Thank you to my brothers with the Black Sopranos. Thank you for setting the bar for me. Thank you to um thank you to the Rocks family for showing me what it means to live a life. You women, I've never met women like you in my life. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you guys. Bucky Backray the EE Rising Star winner at this month's BAFTA Award Ceremony, coming from the Royal Albert Hall and, well, Bucky's living room. Yes, like everything else this year, award season is looking very different to usual. Award season is normally a time when the industry gets all dressed up together for the red carpet, ready to sit through hours of fixed grinning, gushing speeches, back-slapping hugs and fashion faux pas to toast the successes of cinema. Many of the usual ceremony attendees were, like the rest of us, confined to their sofas this spring. But there was still a wealth of films and cinematic achievement to recognise and celebrate from 2020, and British Award events have been doing just that, with a genuinely diverse and exciting range of films and filmmakers invited to the Zoom party, and a certain lack of the usual mega-budget big hitters as cinemas remained closed for much of the year. First off, the 23rd British Independent Film Awards, or BIFAs, which took place at the end of February. Completely online and hosted by actor Tom Felton this year, the event is a key one for recognising and highlighting emerging talent and celebrating independent filmmaking and filmmakers in the UK. Big winners this year were Rocks and His House. Both films are currently streaming on Netflix. The genuinely heartwarming tale of power of female friendship, Rocks, was a deserved winner of the Best British Independent Film. The film's successful casting process, auditioning and workshopping with its young, inexperienced, truly collaborative and working class cast, was also recognised with awards for Best Casting, a supporting actress nod for Kosa Ali and supporting actor for youngster D'Angelo Osei Kisedu. Remy Weeks won Best Director for His House, in which the struggle for a South Sudan refugee couple to truly escape their past and settle in a small English town turns full horror thriller within the four walls of their new home. Wunmi Masaku won Best Actress for the film, and His House also picked up awards for production design and effects. Debut director Rose Glass was recognised for her boldly original chiller featuring a pious and possessed nurse, St Maud, and Riz Ahmed won Best, screen, Best Debut Screenplay for Mogul Mowgli, in which he also stars as a British-Pakistani rapper on the cusp of fame struck down by illness. Here's a clip from the Biffa winner for Best International Film. We, we not only accept the tyranny of the dollar, the tyranny of the marketplace, we embrace it. Uh, we gladly throw the yoke of the tyranny of the dollar on and live by it our whole lives. I think of an analogy as a workhorse. The workhorse that is willing to work itself to death and then be put out to pasture. And that's what happens to so many of us. If society was throwing us away and sending us the workhorse out to the pasture, we workhorses had to gather together and take care of each other. And that's what this is all about. The way I see it is that the Titanic is sinking and uh, economic times are changing. 
And so my goal is to get the lifeboats out and get as many people into the lifeboats as I can. Oh, yeah. That was a taste of Chloe Zhao's Nomadland, finally due for a cinematic release in the UK on the 17th of May, just in time for cinemas reopening. Nomadland also won big at the BAFTAs this month, taking the main awards for Best Film, Best Director, Best Cinematography and Best Actress for its lead and BAFTA favourite, Frances McDormand. It's a notable and historic achievement. Zhao is only the second woman to receive the Best Director BAFTA nod. It's been 11 years since Catherine Bigelow won for The Hurt Locker in 2010 and Zhao is the first woman of colour to win. Zhao was nominated alongside four other female directors, oh, and a couple of men, and if that, as if that wasn't enough for us, usually female director award acknowledgement starved audiences, the award for the outstanding British film and original screenplay both went to debut director Emerald Fennell for her much-anticipated and talked-about debut starring Kerry Mulligan, Promising Young Woman. Two women directors awarded on the same night, you say? No wonder they couldn't be in the same room together. The oddity of this award, though, and it's a disappointment for me as I've been banging on about the film since forever and hoping to see it on the big screen, is that although Universal Films have finally released Promising Young Women for streaming on Sty, it will not be getting theatrical release. So, not coming to a cinema near you. The 74th British Academy of Film and Television Awards for Films took place this April over two nights. With the country being a bit closer to emerging from a long winter lockdown, BAFTA were able to organise a hybrid style version of events over two nights. Edith Bowman and Derma O'Leary hosted the Sunday night event from the Royal Albert Hall, devoid of an audience but with some socially distant live performances and dressed up presenters, a live link to guest presenters in a California studio and home connections to nominees and winners. Other big winners on BAFTA night included Anthony Hopkins getting Best Actor for The Father, also Best Adapted Screenplay for Florian Zeller, Daniel Kaluuya won for Best Supporting Actor for his role as Black Panther leader Fred Hampton in Judas and the Black Messiah, and Korean actress Yoo Jung Yeon won Best uh, Supporting Actress for her role as a spunky and quite delightful grandmother in Minari. Judas and the Black Messiah and Minari are both getting a cinematic release in May when cinemas reopen and the father looks set to follow soon after. It was also pleasing to see British independent films Rocks and His House repeating their success of the Biffers and winning awards in recognition at the BAFTAs as well, with well-deserved awards for casting and outstanding debut respectively. The list of nominees for Outstanding British Films, a list of Biffa nominees basically, it was especially pleasing though to see Rocks and His House joined by Limbo, Mogul Mowgli and Calm With Horses on that shortlist. In fact, Calm With Horses was unlucky to be so well nominated but not awarded at either ceremony. One of my favourite London Film Festival films that screened at the showroom in October, Thomas Vinterberg's Midlife Crisis Danish Boozathon Another Round, also took the award for Best Film Not in the English Language under some pretty tough competition, including Minari. Overall, I was surprised to find that I missed the red carpet nonsense and frivolity award season and the chance to watch A-list actors avoiding rain on that freezing February London red carpet. Part of that could be a nostalgia for anything non-Covid times, of course, because I usually can't bear the fake interviews and I may also be guilty of watching an award ceremony just so I can complain about privileged lovies. But I think I love and miss all the backslapping, really. It was good to see BAFTA getting it right as well. Maybe they haven't done so much before, coming up with a truly diverse range of nominees this year. 
It seems fitting to leave the last word to one of the best speeches that was broadcast to the close the Sunday coverage on BBC One. Collecting his award for outstanding achievement in British film, here's some inspiration from a previous Rising Star Award winner in 2009, Noel Clarke. And here's hoping for a brighter future in 2021 for film and for all of us. This is particularly for my young black boys and girls out there who never believed that this could happen to them. I'm just, I'm so, so thankful for this. And you know, years ago, I ended the, with the words, yes, we can, and we still can. It's just tough. So I wanted to end this one a little bit different. Sometimes you'll feel like it's not achievable. It is. Sometimes you'll feel like you're not good enough. You are. And sometimes you'll feel like you don't deserve it. You do. Thank you. Fantastic speech to wrap it up from Noel Clark at the recent BAFTAs, alongside a brilliant lineup of nominations and winners which are now available to stream, including His House, St Maud and Rocks. What are your guys' thoughts on the award season? I, I imagine we all sort of share a similar view. I think like it's good to see these sort of different creatives get highlighted and everything. I think just sort of it's no coincidence that I'm generally more interested this year as compared to a lot of award seasons. There's a lot of sort of genre diversity as well as narratives. And it's just a lot more appealing as opposed to like your typical sort of baity dramas. Yeah, it's, it's, so there's a mixture of horror and the personal and social history and um, sort of urban working class lives. It's really different and diverse. I quite like how um, there's a lot of films that are more character based than like very character driven. There's less of um, like uh, The Father and um, Sound of Metal. They're, they're very much like character films and uh, they sort of like a very you could write a one sentence synopsis for um, sort of the plot of the film, but um, it's just the performance is, 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 what's, is what stands out, I think. You could say the same about Nomadland as well, I suppose, couldn't you, with Francis McDormand in the central role. Um, and I know it's a film that not everyone's had a chance to see yet, but that will be um, coming out in cinemas the day they're back open, hopefully on the 17th of May. Um, but as well as her, there is all these diverse characters in the background who are drawn from like real life people um, who live the life that she's representing on screen. It's really interesting mix and balance. Tell you what film I do want to see is another round with Mads Mikkelsen, sorry, I'm just... Kind of... Oh, that's that one for um, the BAFTA for um, best international film. They had a lovely acceptance speech for that, didn't they? I was really jealous of them all, um, all that production team together in the same house. <laughs> Um, that's yeah, they always run on. <laughs> I think that's coming out. Is it coming out in May or is it a bit later? It says release date 25th of June, but I've seen a lot of stuff on Instagram with their film um, sites I follow and stuff. And they're always putting up bits of it. So I don't, I don't know how it all works. And sometimes I think some people have seen it and others haven't. I, I saw it at the same. I saw all the films of this year in a two week um, stint at the London Film Festival um, but it did stay with me that one and I did really enjoy it I saw it at the showroom um, but I'm, I'm going to see that again I think because it's good fun there's a lot there's a lot of good ones yeah. we haven't even mentioned Minari have we which um, 
one for supporting actress for Yu Jong Yen, and she made a really lovely, touching speech um, where she called all the British snobs. I think maybe she lost something in translation there, but um, she was a, a well-deserved winner for supporting actress as well at the BAFTAs. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to watching that. Yeah, see, I haven't even heard of Minari yet. No, I have, but I've, I've, just with the cinema's being closed, I'm very behind on films. Yeah, that's been the weird thing this year as well, of like the mix, because normally leading up to the any kind of awards season, the, the leading up to the BAFTAs, you'll get cinemas screening things that are, that are being celebrated at the BAFTAs or nominated, or soon after, because not everything that wins at the BAFTAs is already on general release. Um, but we mm. haven't got that yet. You can't, they can't ride on the quest of the BAFTA wave, I suppose. Well, there will be interesting to see when cinemas reopen what they choose to screen. I'm sure it will be a mix of things that we've missed the opportunity of watching the cinema because we've been streaming it. So many big things have been streamed um, that we want to watch in the cinema. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, just, I'm just very behind on all of it and it's looking forward to come back to normality, you know, to be up to date with what you can watch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, nothing's normal, is it, at the moment? <laughs> no, no, it's getting there. As LGBTQ plus history month has just passed, Tom has a segment discussing the showroom's involvement and how they have provided an online alternative this year, showcasing some fantastic films. March is upon us. 2020 is further in the rearview mirror. And it's now time to reflect upon last month's celebrations. First, celebrating and popularising the UK in the year of 2015, introduced in large part from the work of Schools Out UK, the LGBTQ plus education charity, LGBTQ plus History Month marks a time for reflection and learning, championing, highlighting and celebrating stories of our members belonging to any aspect of the community in question. With film being subject of his podcast, it'd be more than fair to say that these tales are still incredibly far from being anywhere near remotely common in the mainstream sense, and as such can often slip under the radar of many a viewer, which is why the showroom cinema has platformed and screened such accounts over the past half decade or so, and made similar efforts to celebrate even when shackled during current global events. Given this piece is designed to be a sort of historical overlook and guide through past celebrations, why not begin with the here and now in 2021? As my fellow Plague Island residents will know, this country is still very much been under the suffering of a holiday season hangover, with the UK once again going into a lockdown, which has, unsurprisingly, halted conventional means of big screen film consumption. It takes no genius to see this is far from an ideal, given that you can't quite replicate these conditions from home, but if you're a fellow Twitter addict like myself, or happen to keep up to date with local Sheffield and or South Yorkshire news, you may have encountered one of the daily tweets from the Sherwin Cinema's official account, or have perhaps stumbled across Michaela Smith's Sheffield Times article, both marking a commitment to the course from the cinema. Whilst it unfortunately can't quite match in terms of spectacle or event, and maybe doesn't have the same sort of community sense as years gone by, the films highlighted by the cinema throughout this current time offer a variety of stories and themes from the LGBTQ plus spectrum of identity and lend themselves a sort of gateway films and solid jumping off points that should encourage exploration of actors, directors, events, etc. and encourage ex- 
just wider sort of further exploration into the struggles felt by the community. After all, why not make the most of the current restrictions and fill some of the overwhelming amounts of spare time we've been granted, with titles from different continents, covering numerous elements of intersectionality, and perhaps with acclaimed filmmakers such as Celine Sciamma, there's genuinely something for everyone in this scavenger hunt-esque at-home program. As I alluded to somewhat in the prior, this year's rendition is muted to say the least, and the restrictions themselves have, to an extent at least, robbed the soul of the celebrations. So with that in mind, let's explore some of yesterday's highlights to perhaps forecast and or anticipate what one can experience on the big screen when it's deemed safe to do so. Now, presenting these in no particular order whatsoever, let's begin with 2017. The history month of 2017 is perhaps the best indicator of what one can expect outside of the apocalypse age. In practically every sense, the venue embraced the month-long festivities, with prolific arts industry designer Sarah Lewis drafted in to give the cinema and its accompanying bar, cafe area a temporary makeover. Inspired by the aesthetic of Hedwig and the Angry Itch, with Lewis also returning the following year with a punk manifesto infused into her works, on the film side of things, 2017 saw the aptly titled No Template Programme, with a slate of films offering an unflinching, boots-on-the-ground, realist approach in tackling the relationship between sexuality and other factors from religion to culture and ethnicity, giving a global and diverse perspective through its varying formats of short and feature content. And just for more content itself, if the films weren't enough, there's also a featured panel discussion from experts in the fields of film, culture and faith who dissected the importance of the content itself and mull a little on the substance within them. A schedule packed with value, making the most of the time and the month's theme to inform and educate beyond some mild entertainment. That seems to be the underlying theme here, if you will. There's a constant recurring example of the showroom cinema rising to the occasion and taking advantage of the medium of film showing its importance beyond something that's a visual complement to popcorn and snacks. And this can be found non more so than in 2019's programme dedicated exclusively to Awakenings. The year in question slate of films were dedicated to the exploration of sexuality and identity and exploring such under regimes or environments that might well be deemed as socially conservative, at least by Western standards that is. The jewel in the crown of this particular lineup of course being Rafiki, a Kenyan romantic drama charting the relationship between Kina and Ziki, one that blossoms in spite of their feuding families and societal expectations. A modern day Romeo and Juliet tale of sorts, if you will. Which sort of dovetails into 2020 as well. One that would have, only just by the skin of its teeth, managed to proceed before a certain pandemic hit our shores. The year that saw the barnstorming portrait of a lady on fire hit the big screens and a celebration of filmmaker Barbara Hammer being notable highlights from a hectic array of film and accompanying content. Whilst the sort of liberal amongst us, and myself included, can indulge in these months as chances to sort of learn or just simply enjoy, if nothing else, through different means, there is the constant criticism that such months and sort of throwaway days are perhaps a little performative, and in fairness they certainly do open up themselves to predatory use by faceless, anonymous outlets who participate in nothing more than shallow optics, which have no long-term positive, positive impact. So, with that in mind, and having sort of danced through a few years of prior examples, I'll give a brief whistle-stop tour of other LGBTQ plus offerings screened in what you could deem as sort of out-of-season events. 
First on the list, we have Monos. The film, which charts the tale of eight armed teens based in the mountains and their experiences in what is, or at least what is alluded to being, a wartime climate. In the process, they sort of discover themselves and explore each other, and in it we see sort of non-conformist sort of sexual identities, if you will, which do fall under the LGBTQ plus banner, as the commune of teens eventually arm themselves in some sort of Apocalypse Now-esque tale, if you will. Elsewhere, there have been small-scale events and novelty nights, for instance the Global Gay Films event, which was put together by the winners of a young programmer's scheme. So, the handing of the reins to a group, a younger generation, I might add, who screened the film Pride, as well as a brief sort of upstairs event held in the bar and cafe area that saw a performance from Sheffield's Gay Choir. If you're looking for another sort of type of content to feature your eyes upon, there is, of course, the guest blogs and the cinema's blog pages in general. With guest entries from Jasmine Peterson or more permanent staff of the venue, one can enjoy reading on the importance or intricacies of LGBTQ cinema, its many forms of manifestation, and how programmes are assembled. Whilst in all I have far from covered everything here, I hope this can be used as a decent sort of taster of what would, usually at least, be available on the big screen in the month of February, and how to use it as a base or jumping off point to further exploration and engage with this widely diverse cinema of identity. Modern films are still continuing to keep us film lovers entertained through the pandemic, with a steady flow of brand new films available. We have another two reviews this episode, starting with Polystyrene, I Am A Cliché, reviewed by James. Polystyrene, I Am A Cliché is a new documentary that details the troubled life of X-ray specs leading at Polystyrene. I'm a big fan of music documentaries, and this one really stood out to me in how it chose to portray her life by giving a voice to the person who was affected by her music and lifestyle the most, her daughter. By giving a voice to her daughter, we are given a more intimate portrayal of the punk icon. The daughter who first hand see that her mother's stage persona was just a front to a quiet, introverted, gentle person wrapped with insecurities. The actual story of a band X-Ray Specs was great to watch, with real footage of a band playing at numerous gigs difficult because we've now hit a year since the first lockdown, making gigs seem like a real thing of the past. I was very impe- impressed with the people who had been brought in to speak about their time knowing Polish Irene and how the music had helped shape their own lives. These included Jonathan Ross, Vivian Westwood, John Robb, and even Thurston Moore, who was ex- oh, I was quite excited to hear his input about Polish Irene. The documentary, however, is not all a homage and glorification of the punk age. It deals with the alienation musicians can begin to feel when they reach fame and how they can still be treated poorly by their peers whilst being at the top of their game. Sid Vicious is portrayed as a bully in one scene for his cruel treatment of her at a party. Numerous other issues are raised linked to the exhausting lifestyle and the drug use that is linked heavily to the alternative music scene. Overall, this was a great music documentary about one of the punk's key artists and one I would recommend to all fans of music to watch. So what did everyone, what was everyone's favourite parts and everything about the Polish Diary? Um, I really enjoyed it and I'd never heard of um, her before or X-Ray Specs. Mm. And... I'd say I'm say I like quite a lot of punk music. Um, I'd say more recent stuff, but like I'd say this is a great jumping in point 
for her music and her as an artist. Like a lot yeah. of um, music documentaries, I feel like you sort of need to know a bit about them before you watch it. But yeah, totally. I thought this was fantastic. Yeah, no, I, I agree as well, because um, unlike, unlike you, I'm not really a fan of um, punk music in general, but and obviously I, had, I also had no clue going in. Um, nothing, I, I knew nothing about it, but I thought it, was, I thought it was very interesting. I thought it made for a really good watch. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I just thought it was very well done. I thought it looked really great. Like I said, I was really impressed about who came on. I geeked out quite a bit when first and more came on, because obviously it's from Sonic Youth. I was just, yeah, yeah, it just geeked up then. And there was just some really good people in the room. But it, it, and it looked great. And I thought actually just coming in from it with the daughter's perspective was really good. Like, it was a different way to do it rather than just centering it on, like, her or people who knew her. They did it family members who are first kind of affected by her chosen lifestyle. Yeah, I fully agree. Uh, it's perspective is really strong. Like, I sort of prefer that type of documentary as well. Like, sort of Louis Theroux, like, really strong focus, strong anchor to it. And, again, you sort of said, like, she's a daughter, she's got a strong sort of sense of the story she wants to tell. And I think, like, just sort of to second the point that everyone else has sort of made, it is, like, a really good, like, jumping off point or, like, base. It's like, you, you can certainly get a lot from it. Denise, what do you think? I I really love I really love this documentary too, and I, like everyone said, I love that it came from her daughter Celeste's perspective. Um, but also, what I really liked a feature of this documentary was that they didn't have the talking heads aspect that you see in so many documentaries. So all of the voices that you heard, you just heard them, and no visual image was wasted on that. It was it was really rich in archive material as well. I loved it. Loved it to pieces. The archive material was really good in it, like all the, um, just the footage of them playing gigs and everything, things that, just, you know, bits of them like on their own, just with the managers, things, probably quite difficult pieces to find. Yeah, I thought the archive stuff in it was really great, it gave a proper life to it. Yeah, it gave you a real sense of the time as well. Um, I mean, I'm old enough not to remember, this wasn't like part of my music scene at the time, I was tiny, but it is in my lifetime. Um, and it, I always find it like quite weirdly calming seeing my childhood years represented in a in a in a documentary or film like this, well, um, and, like yeah. recognizable things. A nostalgia trip. Rather, yeah, rather, but not nostalgia in a kind of a celebratory way, more of a, a like a recognizing way. Um, and uh, yeah, I really. Some of the cinematography in it was really interesting as well, especially there's a scene at the end at a temple, um, which I thought was great. And I've learned so much about her that I had no idea about at all. I, I just knew her as the, as the singer. I would agree. I, I knew who her X-ray specs were, and, they were bigger, and I didn't mind them, even though I liked the time music. I just found her quite whaley at times when I've heard them in the past. But from watching this, it made me a bigger fan because I understood the music more, what I was trying to say. Yeah, and all the kind of social issues and racist issues that she was facing and sexist issues. It's just, there's so much that she had to contend with. And the mental health issues, it's got so much to, to explore after you've watched this documentary. I think it's, it's brilliant, brilliant, brilliant documentary. It was good. It was a really good music documentary. Now moving on to another brand new Modern Films release, Killing Escobar, reviewed by Josh. Killing Escobar is the title of David Whitney's 2021 drama documentary which centres around an assassination attempt 
on the former Colombian drug lord. Not for the faint of heart, Killing Escobar explores the roles of a small group comprised of mercenaries and ex-SAS operatives who were hired by the Colombian drug cartel to carry out a mission that involved overthrowing one of the world's most notorious criminals. Presented as a culmination of lost footage, gritty reconstructions and interviews, several members of the Hitman squad recount their 1989 mission with little detail being spared. Whitney's documentary offers an intense insight into how the mission almost came into practice, whilst also delving into the personal lives and reflections of the men involved. Um, for me, I have a bit of a soft spot for, for sort of dark, intense documentaries. So a film focusing on the world's greatest drug lord was right up my street. Um, whilst there are some aspects of it that I didn't quite agree with, I thought overall it was a well-handled, interesting experience. Um, McCallies and Tompkins, two prominent individuals involved in the assassination attempt, provide a chilling, brutal account of events that set the tone for the documentary right from the start. Killing Escobar balances this well by revealing the more human elements of the men involved, exploring their personal lives and struggles during the mission. Um, whilst this humanizes the hitmen involved, it does often seem like the group of veterans are reliving their best days and occasionally sort of glorifies um, most of the violence that the mission involved. Um, so it'd be interesting to know what you guys think now. I personally just don't like the um, the whole drug lord program. I find it such a saturated market of um, program. Like all the Netflix ones, narcos, and all just it just seems to be everywhere. All stuff about cartels and stuff like that now. What do you not like drug related films or anything at all? Because now, because it's more of a drama, but this is obviously a documentary. It depends on them. I mean, I just think there's just so many of them, and it's just everyone will. Yeah, I think the, the, the interest is kind of gone. Once you've seen one cartel, haven't you seen them all? They do some nasty stuff, and then, you know, they're all greedy. And that's that. I suppose, <laughs> what, the got, film, the, I suppose though, the filmmaker isn't the filmmaker coming at, at it from the angle of just looking at the the lead guy that he's looking at is someone that's part of a mercenary group that had an attempt. It doesn't really talk much about the drug lords themselves. Mm. Yeah. But I think that for me, that was slightly to the detriment of it because there was a bit where I don't think the filmmaker challenges this guy enough. Um, at one point he's very defensive about um, people judging him for doing what he's doing, you know, saying that the people that he's killing are bad people. But, you know, he's taking money off other drug lords. So he is supporting that drug trade. And I don't think he's really pushed much on that at all. I don't know what other people think about that. Yeah, that's. I think that's what I was trying to get at with um, saying about how it glorifies the... the it's like the group of veterans living that reliving their best days. Uh, yeah, you said, yeah. It's more like it's like a lad's holiday, like they oh, let's all just go off to go and kill Escobar. Yeah, and especially and, the guy that's filming everything on his video camera. It's like he thinks he's in Miami Vice or even the A-team yeah. or something. <laughs> it literally is like, um, yeah, he's just recording everything as if, you know, he's going to come home and make a, a little montage of his lad's holiday. I don't know. For me, I didn't quite... Um, the, the gripe I sort of had with it was the um, uh, the dramatic reconstructions. I'm, I'm, I'm not a fan of them in anything, in any documentary, so it's not really like specific to this one, but um, I'm just not a fan. I think they like over-dramatise and, and make all the... 
they they just make all the violence seem a bit too theatrical and uh I don't know, I wasn't a fan. I'd agree with that one. I just think there's a responsibility a filmmaker has to balance it. He has a voice of um, an ex-gang member, like the head of security, I think he is, um, who talks about revenge attacks on white people or English people that they that they carried out after the attempted assassination. Well, they didn't get as far as that really, did they? Um, but the, the filmmaker never really draws back to that. What were those consequences? What? How many people did that affect? You know, they're playing at Miami Vice in the A-Team had real life consequences for the people, not just for this guy that we're centering on, who, who's, you know, the consequence of it. I mean, yes, he had a really violent upbringing and, and childhood. Um, and now he's, you know, physically not so well off, but that's a consequence for the lifestyle that he chose to live. And I, and I didn't find like the film really got to the, the crux of that. All in all though, it's interesting to hear from a, a first-person perspective, like the account of events that went on, it's the sort of thing you'd hear about on the news, but um, you'd never really, you'd never really see it in sort of a documentary style. So I, th I overall, I thought it was quite interesting. We're all very much looking forward to the showrooms reopening on Monday, the seventeenth of May. And next episode, we'll be discussing our anticipation to finally get back in one of their screens and what we could be seeing. That's everything for this episode. We hope you enjoyed and we will be back once again for episode four next month, where hopefully we see the end of closed doors on the horizon. <laughs>